month, we are talking about love. And this week in particular, I felt challenged to speak on 1 Corinthians 13. And many times we call this the love chapter. And I realized that I had, in studying this, I realized I had some pretty big misconceptions about 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, So we're gonna read through this passage of scripture right away so that it's fresh in our minds. But rather than going through line by line and talking about each, each word, we're really gonna be looking into the reasons why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. What, was, what were the factors, what were the circumstances that drove him to write this piece? So let's go ahead and get started on this. 1 Corinthians 13, this is the ESV version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Growing up in church, I had always associated this church, uh, this, this passage of scripture with wedding ceremonies because this is the scripture that's so often read during the, uh, the wedding ceremony. Who, who actually had this scripture read at their wedding? Yes, yeah. Who just doesn't remember? <laughs> who is just trying to get through the scripture reading to get to the fun part? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. I know you people. <laughs> I actually don't remember if this verse was read at our wedding or not. I, I couldn't even tell you. But here's what I do remember. We, when Peter and I were, were getting married, going through our wedding, we had kind of reached the part of the evening's reception where you're trying to make that initial attempt at leaving. <laughs> and um, 
So your friends are kind of running around helping you gather up everything, making sure you don't forget anything. And typically the bride will change out of the wedding dress and she'll have a cute little travel outfit all picked out. And so um, I'd reached this point where I had changed. I was like looking around, trying to make sure we had everything, gathering all of our stuff together. And I can hear, I can hear Peter coming down the hall and he's like, Crystal, Crystal, Crystal. And <laughs> here's the thing. Peter is almost patient with me when I, well, he is very patient with me now. Back then when we first got married, he was almost patient with me. But if he thinks other people are waiting on me, it takes his impatience to this new level in the stratosphere. Like nothing is happening because everyone's waiting on my wife, right? Like I am the reason everything is not happening. So so he is like coming in like, come on. And I'm trying to grab everything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have not been married for two hours and we are already failing at this. Like he's not patient and I'm not kind. This is gonna go really well. So So this was like my story of the love chapter, right? Like failed within two hours, big time. But the funny thing is about this scripture and using it at weddings is that Paul didn't actually write this letter in regards to marriage. (laughs) Probably figured that ship has sailed. He actually wrote it to fellow believers. And he wrote it as part of a critique to fellow believers. Um, And I think it's really important in understanding this to know the why behind, what were the circumstances that were happening that made him, forced him to write this. So let me give you the broader picture. In the ancient city of Corinth, it was a large port city. It was full of temples to Greek and Roman gods, and it was a major economic center. There was a lot of of things that are happening in this city. So Paul strategically moved to Corinth um, to become a missionary, and that's where he spent a year and a half of his life uh, preaching the gospel and, and teaching the good news of the gospel. And as a result, a whole bunch of people became believers, and they started this Christian community in Corinth. Well, after a while, Paul, Paul decides to move on to start other, other home churches in other cities. But he starts getting word that things were not going so great at the church in Corinth. <laughs> like, um, so he is essentially forced to write a letter to the church community in Corinth um, addressing a lot of the issues that are coming up. And it's a letter. So 1 Corinthians, we call it 1 Corinthians, we call it a book of the Bible, but actually it's the first letter that Paul wrote to the church community in Corinth. So there are five major issues that Paul wanted to address, and we're gonna go through these five issues. The first was division in the church. There were a few other teachers and leaders that had come through Corinth after Paul left, and they came through, one was a guy named Apollos, and the other was the Apostle Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher, and they had picked their favorite leader, and they became groupies around that leader. 
I know that never happens today, right? Like there have been celebrity pastors since the birth of the church, Jesus save us all. But they started, what happened was they started to talk badly about the people who were following other leaders and other teachers. And so it was causing a lot of division within the church because they were being so critical of each other. So Paul gets word that this is happening and he's like, you have got to be kidding me. Seriously, the church is not a popularity contest. The church is not centered around the pastor. The church should be centered around Christ. It is, it's leaders and it's teachers. They are servants of Christ. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the leader. It's about Christ. And you know, you can prefer one teacher over another. You know, that's okay. I know that never happens here. <laughs> we don't have favorites. No, I've heard things. I know people. I've heard things. It's okay to have a preference. That's perfectly fine. But what's not okay is to speak critically and badly about our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a no-no. So Paul is essentially saying here, we must love others more than our own preferences or even culture. We have to love others over these things. So that was the first issue he was, he was addressing. The second issue he was addressing was sexual immorality in the church. And this is where it gets a little weird, like a little weird. Paul gets word that there are a number of believers, church members, that are sleeping around with each other. I mean, one guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law, which we're not even gonna go into the vileness of this. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law. There were others that were visiting prostitutes that worked in the pagan temples. And beyond all of that, there were people in the church that were saying, oh, this is all just fine. It's okay, because we're free in Christ. God's grace is endless. His grace is bottomless. This is fine. And Paul's response is, no, 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 no. You, you guys, you're way, way off. If you are a Christian, our sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Christ's love and grace for us. It is our, Christ gave his body for us. He sacrificed his body for us. So what we do with our bodies, it matters and it matters big time. It's not just ours to do with whatever we want, whatever whim we have. Being a follower of Christ involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. Now, I want to be clear. Paul is responding to a very serious and specific sin. He's, he's responding to uh, adultery, he's responding to prostitution, he's re responding to fornication, repeated, unrepented sin, and a very false narrative about God's grace. But what he's not talking about is non-sin issues that are really just a matter of individual family preference, right? So for, for instance, sometimes in our church culture, we have very strong opinions about dating and who you should date, and whether or not young people should date, or whether or not if they do date, whether or not they should kiss on that date, or whether or not they should go to dances together. And I, 
I grew up in the church. I've heard it all. I've seen it all. You know, I've seen the dances where you and your partner have to leave enough room for the Holy Spirit. You know, you've got Holy Spirit's right here. You gotta leave enough room. But that's not what Paul was referring to here. He's talking about sexual sin that gives Satan an open door into your life to really mess it up. And I've got to tell you, what Paul was trying to say was sin always costs something. Sexual sin and misconduct sows seeds of destruction into our future. And we think at the time, I'm getting away with it. No one's watching. I'm only, this is about me. It doesn't concern anyone else. But we don't see the seeds that are being thrown into your future that will come up and the price will be too high for you to pay. Because there will be a time where we have to pay the piper. And this is why we need Jesus, because it's gonna be a, a price that we cannot pay. It's too much. Paul is saying, even though this is feeling good to you right now, temporarily, it is not love and it is not showing love to others. So we must love others more than our own desires. All right, the third issue that Paul's addressing revolves around food. Christians were divided over whether or not it was okay to eat meat from animals that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. And there was a split between the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish believers. And they both felt very strongly about their own position on both sides. Paul responds by saying, listen, we know that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he is the highest and he is the most powerful. So it's not necessarily an issue of, if I do this, I'm bringing Jesus down or I'm dishonoring him or I'm taking him down a peg. It's not about that at all. We should do our best to not do anything that would miss lead others. That's what the issue is here. It's not necessarily about eating the meat or not eating the meat. It's about how we're treating others. So if your actions are, are taking others further away from discovering who Jesus is, who Christ is, from, under, from them understanding his character and his attributes, then just stop doing it. Just, just don't do it. Eat what you'd like in your own homes but let's not deliberately try to mislead others regarding the nature of Christ and how much he loves them. The core principle is love, love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of others. And I can honestly say that as a pastor, I have never had to address this food offered to idols situation. It has never come up. And I don't know that any of the other pastors have either. It's just, it's a situation that is foreign to me. The situation is foreign, but the argument is not. I know this argument. I know it very well. Because in 2020 and 2021, I watched the largest shift in church culture that I have ever seen take place in my lifetime. And we lost many friends, not only due to illness, but due to offense even, due to a differing of opinions, 
due to a differing of, of preferences. And one of the greatest disappointments for me personally has been watching Christian brothers and sisters forget how much they love each other. Choosing instead to, to, to cling to opinion or hurts or offenses or their comforts or desires or isolation and forget how much I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And why does this affect me so deeply? Why do I feel this so deeply? Because John 13, 35 says, your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The world is self-destructing. And if Christians cannot figure out how to love each other, no one will. We have to feel the weight of this. We, this is up to us. We have to figure out how do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ so that I am a light in a dark, dark world that is dying every day. We must love others more than our own opinions. The fourth issue that Paul was addressing was the way that they were holding church gatherings. So Paul had to step in here because things were just really a mess. There were some people that were coming to church and they were having these really powerful spiritual experiences, which is great, right? Like we want that. But what was happening was someone would feel so passionately and they would have a gift of tongues. And so they would just stand up in the middle of the meeting and start speaking in tongues. And of course, no one else understood what they were saying. So someone else would stand up and it's like, okay, is it my turn to talk now? I, I have a word from God and I really need to share it right now. And then someone else would have a, a special gifting that they wanted to share with the church. And so you had all of these people constantly standing up, interrupting others, pushing people out of the way. And it was just chaos. I mean, you can imagine a visitor walking in, you know, someone who's just trying to discover who Jesus is, who is this Christ? And they're walking into this home and they're like, oh, what? Back away slowly, this is chaos. So the new newcomers were like, couldn't even hear the Bible. They couldn't even hear scriptures because there was so much chaos happening. And so Paul's response is to ask them, okay, let's think about the purpose of gathering together. Are, 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 are we gathering, is the gathering becoming more about you or Christ? Because if it's becoming more about you, then you're just gonna keep pushing your, your gifting and your special insight and what you wanna share. You're just gonna keep pushing other people out of the way to share that. But Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be God's love. Love is the key concept. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and to seek the well-being of others. Paul was a, a big fan of powerful spiritual experiences, but not when it detracts other people or freaks them out or pulls them further away from knowing who Christ is. And Paul's doing something that's very delicate, but very important here. He is massaging the tension between love and the spiritual gifts. 
And what can happen is that people can fall in love with their own spiritual gift and it becomes more about them than about serving God. Because it's the thing that makes you feel special, right? It's the thing that makes them feel special. They wanna share it with the church. They wanna share how much they know and, and, and what they can offer. And they lose sight of when the timing is right. And that is so key because I have watched people bounce from church to church, demanding a platform and insisting that they had this amazing spiritual gift. And they probably did, but they were unwilling to wait on God's timing. And rather than wait, they decided instead to become angry and disillusioned with the church. Paul is telling believers, don't love your gifting more than others. We have to love people first. Your spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, interpretations, teaching, these are all wonderful things and they are needed in the body of Christ, but they will pass away one day. We won't need them in heaven, but guess what will remain? Love. Love is eternal. Love will always exist. Love remains forever. The final issue that Paul was addressing here was the resurrection. The problem was um, there were people in the church who were saying that the resurrection didn't actually happen, um, that the idea of Jesus' resurrection was just ridiculous, and actually the resurrection doesn't really matter to becoming a Christian. <laughs> and Paul reacts to this one big time. Like if you were looking for a way to wind Paul up, this would be it. This is the ticket. He says the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive in a physical body after he was publicly executed by the Romans. The resurrection was Jesus's victory over death. And it is a source of life and power for us today. It's because of the resurrection that believers from different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures and demographics have a reason to unite around Jesus. It's also the reason that, that it's our motivation for, for sexual integrity. It's the source for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection was the example of how to love people beyond our own preference, beyond our own desires, beyond our own opinions. It's the power of Christ in us to love others. So we're gonna reread chapter 13, and we're gonna read it with new eyes, the eyes that understand the situations that Paul was addressing. We're kind of knowing more of the background helps us understand specific things that Paul was saying. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, hint, hint, your church gatherings, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, 
so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul is describing how God loves us. Because you say, see, he knows we're human. He knows we're gonna fail. A really fun activity to do with this verse is to insert your own name in place of love and just see how far you get. I didn't get very far. <laughs> Confession time. But we, see, we can replace Jesus's name with love and read through the whole thing beautifully. Paul knows that we're human. He knows we're gonna fail, but he had to show us how Christ loves us so that we can begin to feel Christ's love for us, Christ's amazing sacrifice and love for us. And this is the definition and the model for how we then, with Christ in us, can love other people. In closing, will you stand with me? I think Satan has put much effort into hijacking the word love in the world. And one of the, believe, the reasons I believe he's done that is because scripture clearly states that God is love. So if Satan can keep us confused about the definition of love, he can keep us confused about who God really is, his character, his nature, the way he loves us, his attributes. That's what was happening in Corinth, the church in Corinth. And that tactic hasn't changed today. So will you pray with me today? Father God, we repent for not loving others the way that you have loved us, even when we didn't feel like it even when it was difficult. You didn't call us just to do easy things. You called us to live in a difficult way as well, to do difficult things with you helping us. So God, we repent for putting our own opinions, our own preferences, our own desires, even our own giftings above others. 
Jesus, this week, we ask that you change our minds on some things, that you change our hearts about certain people and help us fully feel and fully experience your love for us so that we can demonstrate it to the world. We want the world to know us as your disciples. Jesus.